1 Timothy. Um, and I think the course is, after I come back from Korea in two weeks, we're going to start a Christmas season ser- sermon series. And then in the new year, we'll start 2 Timothy. Okay? So, like I said, this is the last sermon in 1 Timothy. And let's just go back to where we started, the reason why Timothy wrote this letter to Timothy. The reason why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And one of the main reasons is, is that there were false teachers in the church of Ephesus. And Paul is instructing Timothy to fight against these false teachers. Once again, on the last two verses of this letter, Paul is again addressing the issues of false teachers. Paul has a very negative, in fact, hatred towards the teachings of the false teachers. These false teachers, Paul says, are advocating knowledge. Knowledge. Meaning that it seems helpful, it seems wise, but Paul says this knowledge that the false teachers are teaching are really what? Um, irreverent babble and contradictions. So these false teachings, as impressive as they are, Paul says, are nothing more than irreverent babble. Babble here means empty words. What does irreverent mean here, according to Paul? Irreverent here means something that is outside of things that are holy and sacred. Right? So... For example, in the Old Testament times, right, there is the temple of God. The center of Jerusalem is the temple of God. That's the holy place. Outside of the city is a place that is irreverent, that is not holy. So irreverent here means something that is not holy, which means something that is not based on the word of God. So these teachers are teaching things that are not based on the sacred teachings of God. They're making things up. That's what Paul is saying. Irreverent here means they are not teaching the Bible. They are not teaching the word of God. They're teaching something they they made up on their own. Unfortunately, this is still going on today. For some reason, many pastors are not confident with the word of God. They're not. They believe that if they preach the word of God as as it is, either people are going to get bored or people are going to be offended and leave. So they don't have confidence in the word of God. So even though they say they believe in the word of God, the way they communicate it is not really consistent with the word of God. For example, there is a megachurch in this area, and I'm not going to say which megachurch, right? Right? where the pastor is a nationally recognized person, right? But I heard a sermon, sermon that he did a few years ago where he devoted his Sunday morning service to teach his white congregation about what white privilege is. So he devoted his morning feeding his congregation, telling them what, what, privilege, what, what, what white privilege is. Is there a white privilege description anywhere in the Bible? No. Right? But he thinks that's more important for his congregation to hear rather than what the Word of God has to say. 
Many preachers, rather than say, even though they say they're for the word of God, if you listen to the majority of what they try to say in the sermon, they talk about the word of God just a little, and most of the time it's, it's filled with emotional, fun stories, anecdotes, personal anecdotes of what happened to them. The reason why they do this is because they don't really have confidence in the word of God. That's what the false teachers are doing. They're teaching things that are irreverent, that is outside of the word of God. And Paul says, these teachings, as impressive as they sound, in the end are babbles, which means they're empty words. It's just ba 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 It means nothing. Okay? Not only that, it's a contradiction to what scripture has to say about what life is. It go against scripture. So they're, uh, they're teaching something that is outside of scripture, and which are just empty babbles, and they contradict the word of God. Thus, what makes these teachers so dangerous. Impressive sounding words that means nothing and that are quite dangerous. Let's talk about some of the things that these false teachers were teaching. Number one, some, some of these teachers, I think specifically in Ephesus, what these false teachers were teaching was, was a thing called legalism. They were teaching legalism, which means legalism basically means you need more than Jesus to be saved. It's Jesus plus something else. In the church of Ephesus, it's about Jesus plus, in order for you to be saved, it's Jesus plus not eating certain types of food. You know, there's a new restaurant in the, in the Centerville giant area. It's called Sochon or something. I was there, like, I was like walking by there yesterday. And I looked at the menu, and they specialize in feet. Pig feet, chicken feet, right? Something that the New Old Testament is against, right? So legalists in the Ephesus are saying, Leave Jesus, plus don't go to that restaurant. Don't eat the stuff that the restaurant serves. And believe in Jesus and don't get married. Because marriage equals sex, and sex is gross. So don't get married and don't have sex and don't eat pig's feet. And believe in Jesus. Then you'll be saved. They're adding Jesus plus something else. This type of teaching is very appealing to, even though it doesn't make any sense, it appeals to the flesh because we want to do, we want to contribute to our salvation. Believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus is more difficult, right, than not eating chicken feet and not having sex. I, if I say, if you tell me, if you, don't, if you don't eat chicken feet and not have sex, then you can go to heaven, I would not rather not eat chicken feet and have, not have sex if I can go to heaven. The danger of legalism is people want to somehow contribute to their salvation. And that's what these false teachers in Ephesus were trying to teach them. Some, also, some teachers, some false teachers in the early church are also teaching what is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism basically means, means these Gnostic teachers are telling the Christian congregation, look, you don't really need the Bible we, you got to listen to us because we have the secret knowledge. You need us to interpret what the Bible means. 
Gnosticism means I have the secret knowledge. You need to listen to me and not the Bible. That's what Gnostics believe. Other false teachers advocated in the early church is called asceticism. Asceticism basically means, basically believes, right? The soul and the body are separate, right? Soul is pure, body is evil. So aesthetics believe in order for you to be saved, you not only have to believe in Jesus, but you have to punish your body, right, for God to accept you. Because your body is evil, you need to do things to set your soul free from this dirty prison. That's what yoga is from, by the way. The reason why you do yoga poses, like difficult heart, it's yogis believe if you do that, then you are aligning the pain that you are causing your body is somehow freeing your spirit from this evil contaminant, evil container. Asceticism. Believing in Jesus is not enough, you need to punish your body for God to accept you. Some early church Christians, some early church false teachers also taught antinomianism. Antinomianism basically says, once again, the body and soul are separate. When Jesus saves you, Jesus only saves your soul, right? When Jesus saves you, he saves your soul. And when he saves your soul, what you do with the body doesn't matter. Does it sound familiar? When Jesus saves you, he saves your soul. And your body is dirty, so he doesn't really care what you do with your body anymore. You can sin with your body, and Jesus still loves you because he saved your soul. That's what antinomians believe. So there are all these false teachers going around in the early church. And Paul is saying, you need to battle these people. And Paul tells the reason why. But what all these false teachers have in common is this. Whether it is legalism, asceticism, antinomianism, or narcissism, what these false teachers have in common is this. They're basically saying that the full gospel of Jesus Christ is not enough. You need to do something more. What is the full gospel of Jesus Christ? It means more than Jesus dying for your sins, which is part of it. But in order for you to understand that Jesus died for your sins... You need to know the nature of God. You need to know the nature of man. You need to know what sin is. You need to know who Jesus is. And you need to know why he needed to die for you. And you need to know what it means for you to be united with him. And you also need to know what it means for him to raise you up to new life. And you got to know what it means to be glorified. The full gospel of Jesus Christ is more than Jesus dying for you. You need a full comprehensive understanding about God in order for you to understand about why Jesus needed to die for you. Right? Let me give you an example. Look, if I say this phrase, God loves you, you'll say, yeah, God loves me. Okay? But in order for you to understand the the sentence, God loves you, you first need to understand who God is. And then you first, and then you need to understand what biblical love is. And then you need to understand what, who you are. Right? 
If you don't know who God is, and if you don't know what biblical love is, and if you don't know who you are, the sentence, God loves you, doesn't mean anything, right? Right? The problem with Christianity back then and now is vagueness. So there's this Christian comedian called John Christ, and he has a satire. And he says, how do you become successful? How do you, how do you write a successful Christian song? This is what he says. In order for you to write a successful Christian song, you need, you need this. Just do these things, and you'll be successful. Number one, he says, to write a successful Christian song, you need three chords, simple three chords, A, D, and G. That's all you need to know, OK? Then you need simple rhymes in the lyrics of the song. A, D, and G, and simple rhymes. And also in the lyrics of the song, right, write some vague, struggling words, such as what? Life is like a storm. Life is like a mountain, a valley, a desert. Words that suggest vague struggles, right? Simple, simple chords, simple rhymes, vague words of struggle, and vague Christian language. Grace, mercy, love. Words that people kind of think they know what it means, but they don't really don't. Blend these simple, vague notions together, and voila, you will have a successful Christian song. That's why many Christian songs, when you actually sing it, it sounds nice, but a lot of them, I don't know what they mean because they're so vague, right? It's not just the Christian song that is vague. It's the entire Christian, Christendom is filled with vagueness. Churches do not fully communicate the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like these false teachers, these false teachers had a vague notion of Jesus is, and they just thought, and they taught strange doctrines and made Jesus really vague, and that's what modern churches are doing. What are some of the false teachings going on in the modern church? Modern church still believes in legalism. For example, if you go to a state where there's a Christian Jesus culture movement, in the Jesus culture, they say, in order, for, you need to believe in Jesus, you need to say a prayer, like when you're in seventh grade, say a prayer in Jesus' name. Then you, don't, you, you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't drink alcohol, you shouldn't, cons you, 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 don't, you shouldn't consume worldly entertainment, and you have to vote Republican. So if you accept Jesus when you're in seventh grade, don't drink alcohol, don't do drugs, don't consume worldly entertainment, vote Republican, guess what? You're saved, y'all. They simplify what it means to be a Christian by simple behavior. If you do this, you're a Christian. If you vote Democrat, you're going to hell, right? Legalism. 
there is antinomianism in the, in the kingdom of God. Jesus loves my soul. He doesn't care what I do with my body. Okay? You preach a vague notion of Jesus, and you communicate, Jesus, Jesus just loves you the way you are, and he doesn't give, give any two cents of what you do, how you live your life. He does not care, care about you carrying your cross. Antinomianism. Gnosticism. There are cults that says, I had the secret knowledge. A lot of these cults really like Revelation, right? I can interpret what Revelation means. You need to listen to me to understand the full, to understand the full knowledge of God. That's why I don't really trust charismatic preachers. Guys who are like really charismatic who seem to suggest that you need to listen to that guy to understand who God is, that's a form of Gnosticism. I know a preacher who says, if you agree with me, you're a Christian, and if you disagree with me, then you're a heretic. I go, really? You? I have to agree with you to be a consistent Christian? If I disagree with you, I'm a heretic? That's some of those guys out there. There are some of those guys out there. Gnosticism. It's still going on in the church today. And Paul warns against such type of false teaching. Because if you believe in this type of false teaching, verse 21, for professing in these false teachings, some Christians swerved from the faith. The reason why these false teachings are so dangerous, Paul is saying, if you profess, which means if you accept these false teachings as true, then you will swerve away from true faith. Do you understand? Look, this is the biblical model of salvation. This is the biblical model of salvation. The word of God is preached to your mind. The word of God, who God is, who Jesus is, what he requires, who you are, it is preached through the word of God. Your mind, your consciousness absorbs that information through your mind. There's a paradigm shift of your consciousness so that you'll be awoken to the things of God. That's the biblical model of salvation. The word of God is preached to you. Your mind, your consciousness absorbs it through your mind, through your ears and through your mind. And that shift, that word of God being absorbed by your consciousness, opens your eyes to God and Jesus Christ and who you are. That's the model of salvation. It is primarily through the word of God, through your mind, penetrating your consciousness. That's how salvation is communicated. It is not communicated by flowery words. It is not co communicated through emotional experiences. It is not communicated through anything. The Bible is clear. Salvation comes from the hearing of the word. Okay? If that's the case, if a person does not listen to the word of God, if the word of God does not penetrate the person's consciousness, then that person remains in darkness. Right? 
That's why Satan, the number one thing that Satan does is he lies to you. He distorts the truth in you. Okay? How did he tempt Adam and Eve to fall? He distorted God's, what God said, and he distorted God's promise. Did God really say? Did he really? No, he's wrong. If you do this, you're not going to die, Eve. Satan distorts the word of God. John says antichrists are basically false teachers. Jesus says Satan is a father of lies. Look, how did Satan tempt Jesus in the desert? Turn this stone into bread. Bow down to me. Jump yourself. Like from the, from the, what all these temptations have in common is Satan is giving Jesus an alternative way to live. Don't live the way God wants you to live, Jesus. I'll give you another way. Satan gave Jesus alternatives. Satan gave you alternative thoughts. Okay? He gives you alternative ways to live life. You don't have to live the way God wants you to live. You don't have to know God. You don't have to know Christ. You don't have to, you don't have to live for him. There are better ways to live. There are better values to have. He gives you alternatives. And oftentimes, people embrace his alternatives rather than what is true. Look, it was Halloween last week, right? Halloween season, all these horror movies come out. Exorcist, Exorcist Remix. Haunting of Emily Rose, Saul 10, right? There are all these like scary movies coming out, evil movies. I think my daughter went to see Five Nights at Freddy's, right? You know that? And it's scary. It depicts evil as scary. But Satan is not that visibly scary. Satan is dangerous, not because he's scary, but because he's persuasive. He's persuasive in giving you an alternative truth, an alternative reality. Don't go the way God wants you to go. There is a better way. He takes you away from listening to God's word because he knows that's the only way to salvation. When people listen to false teachers, they swerve away from their faith. It is happening then. It is happening now. Look, in the last 10 years, there's a huge amount of Christians deconstructing from their faith. The word deconstructing is they just give up on their faith. Some do it very publicly. Some say, like Christian celebrities, I am no longer a Christian. Or some people do it a little bit more passive-aggressively. They just stop showing up, right? So, they de so they're deconstructing from Christianity. But do you know what all these deconstruction stories have in common? If you look at the way their faith was before their, their, their deconstruction, 
their faith wasn't really established by the true knowledge of God. Their faith was based on something else. Their faith was based on Jesus' culture. Their faith was based on some vague notion of what Jesus is. And when the true, not, true challenges of life comes, they can't answer those things. Because they were really never established in the truth. Because their consciousness was never invaded by the truth of God. And when troubles and oppositions come, they fold. For example, you know what the number one reason, one of the number one reasons why young people leave the church? is because they say, it's because of the church's stance on homosexuality. I cannot be part of an organization, they say, that doesn't accept gay people. Okay? But if you look at this statement, what their decision thinking is based on, it's not really why God forbids homosexuality. More important than the word of God is them wanting to be nice to people. Their sense of wanting to be nice to people is greater than truth because they really didn't know the truth. For example, right, right now, there's Israel and Palestine going on right now, right? And I'm surprised that the amount of anti-Semitism that is happening in America. Palestine attacked, the Hamas attacked Israel, killed 1,300 people. And in America, young people are rising up in support of Hamas rather than Israel. It's the craziest thing I ever heard. So there is this feminine, lesbian professor in support of Hamas. Okay? She's a feminine lesbian professor. Do you know what Hamas do to lesbians and feminists and women? They don't treat them very well. If you're gay, a father can kill their gay child without any repudiation. They don't view women very highly. So everything that this gay feminine professor stands for, Hamas is the, is the opposite. But she says, I support Hamas. Why? Because she wants to be nice to people who are seemingly oppressed. Wanting to be nice is far more important than truth. A lot of the Christians deconstruct because they're wanting to be nice and accepting is greater than the truth because they don't really know the truth. Christians deconstruct because they were raised in a vague notion of Jesus. And when they're raised in a vague notion of Jesus, when troubles come, they fold. Their vague notions of Jesus cannot sustain them. Best example, Joshua Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye guy. He wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He did an interview with Christianity Today of why he left Christianity. That dude wrote a very popular Christian book. He was a Christian all his life. He was a Christian pastor, pastoring a mega church, and he declared he's no longer a Christian. And Christianity Today asked him, why did you deconstruct? And he said, when my mother died, and I was having trouble with my marriage, 
Jesus couldn't do, I, I, like my faith was limited. I, I couldn't understand how my faith could answer for these bad things happening to me. When you don't, when your consciousness is not shifted toward the things of God, you don't, when bad things happen, you have no leg to stand on. You guys see the movie, the TV show Mad Men? Mad Men is about, it's an old TV show, 10 years old, I guess. It's about this guy named Don Draper. He's an ad executive in New York in the 1960s. And in one of the episodes, Don Draper says, you know what advertising is? He says advertising is basically telling people that they're okay, that you be okay. For a lot of people, they, their idea of God is like that. They think God is someone who's going to tell you, it's okay. It'll be okay. Maybe, in fact, this morning, you're sitting there, and you want me to communicate to you, it's going to be okay. Life is okay. But oftentimes, life is not okay. Oftentimes, babies get murdered by a terrorist. Oftentimes, you will lose your job. Oftentimes, you're not going to get what you want. Even though you pray for the longest thing, you're not going to get what you wanted. It's not okay, oftentimes. How will your faith, your vague faith, support you in times when it's not okay? How will it? How will our shallow understanding of the nature of God sustain you during life's storm? Your vague faith cannot support it. That's why people deconstruct. Because their faith was built on vague notions rather than what is true. That's why Paul says, fight against false teachings because they will destroy people. I ask you this again. God loves me. Do you really know what that means? Jesus died for me. Do you know what that means, really? If you don't, you're in trouble. Right? You are. How will you understand this? You need God's grace. That's what Paul, in verse 21, at the end of in the last sentence of this letter, Paul says, grace of God be with you, Timothy. Grace be with you. Tim, Paul usually ends his letter in a, in, with a very long salutation and greetings. If you look at Romans 16, 
the last chapter of Romans is all about Paul greeting people at the end of his letter. He ends this letter in a very short, abrupt way. There's no greeting. There's no salutation. He just says at the end of the letter, grace be with you. Why so short? Why so abrupt? Some scholars say Paul ends this letter this way because he is emphasizing to Timothy about Timothy's need to hope and depend upon the grace of God. Grace is one of those words that you've listened to all your life. Perhaps you named your kid Grace. Hi, Grace. Perhaps you named your kid Grace because you're surrounded by the word grace. What does grace mean to you? Pastor Wooden said it right. Grace in the Old Testament means God's unmerited favor, kindness, and love to undeserving people. That is right. That is what grace is. But we need to be careful. Grace, when we, when we say God's Unmerit, the unmerited kindness and love of God, that's what grace is. We just, can, we just are tempted to think of grace as like God's good intent of loving us. Grace is more than God's positive intent in loving you. Grace, it's God's power and energy that changes people. When you think of the word grace, I think of the word Grace Lee, Grace Kim, when I was in college. One of my best friends in college was named Grace Kim. Guess what? Daughter of a pastor, of course she is. Super nice, super positive, super outgoing, super short. Grace, God bless her. When I think of the word grace, I think of that nice, positive grace. But Paul's understanding of grace is dynamite. It's explosive power. God's grace is not nice grace Lee out there, but God's mountain-moving, dead-raising, life-changing, glory-giving power. So from this moment on, when you hear the word grace, do not think about nice little grace. Think of grace as power, energy of God. So when you look at our grace, imagine grace to be this Dwayne the Rock Johnson type of figure. Power, right? Energy. We, we sometimes like feminize God a little bit. We think God is just this passive, like these, this passive oh, psychiatrist type. No, God is, God is a warrior. He, he's a oh, glorious artist. He's a life giver. Grace communicates, the word grace communicates that nature of God. We have to end quickly, so let's go by quickly. Specifically, God's grace is, there's two Two parts to God's grace in Pauline theology. Okay? 
Grace is God's power and energy that changes people, right? That's, God, that's what grace means. God's power and energy that changes people. When God is gracious to you, it means he will change you, okay? So there's two parts of God's grace. Number one, God's grace is God's power to objectively change a person standing before him. What I mean by this is this. When we were born, we're naturally, we are, our standing before God is a, is a standing of sinner, children of wrath, deserving of judgment. That is our natural standing before God through our birth. But when God is gracious, he changes our standing from a children of wrath into the children of God. There is an objective transformation of standing before him. The great part of being a lawyer is that you get to see changes in people's status. Before PJ comes, this person is this status. After PJ does his work, this person is another status. I'm a status changer. God is a status changer. The grace of God is he is changing your status to a children of wrath, into a children of God. Remember that in your brain. It's God's power to change your status. That's what grace means, number one. Grace, number two, means God's power to subjectively change a person's nature. Number one, God's standard of God's power changing your status. Number two, grace means God's power to subjectively change a person's nature. The great theologian B.B. Warfield says this, Grace is the energy of the Holy Spirit, whereby the moral nature of the human soul is renewed, and the soul which is now renewed is enabled to act in compliance with the will of God. Whoo, what a definition. Sean Stark loved that definition. Once again, Grace is the energy of the Holy Spirit, whereby the moral nature of the human soul is renewed, and the renewed soul is enabled to act in compliance with God's will. That's grace. Understand? And the best demonstration of this grace is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 describes the changes of our standing before God and the changes of our nature before God. There is grace. Quickly, let's go by. What was our internal position before Christ? Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which basically means we were dead to the things of God. We did not care about God. We did not care about the, the doing his will. We thought the world revolved around us. Being dead to sins and trespasses means you are dead to the things of God. You don't care about God. But also says before Christ, our position was, we follow the course of the world and the prince and the power, the prince of the power of air. The prince of the power of air here means Satan. So before the grace of Christ, we thought that the course of the world, which is the wisdom, values, and philosophy of the world, which is architected by Satan, we thought those values were absolutely right. 
and living in accordance to those standards is the way, to li- is the way we're supposed to live life. Okay? The world says you got to live a certain way. And we say, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the way, that's the way I want to live. Paul says before grace, you thought that wisdom of the world was the way you should live and you agreed with it? Oh, my goodness. And Paul says, you guys were living, we were living as children of disobedience. How do children of disobedience live? We follow the desires of our flesh, and we follow the desires of our minds. We let our fallen flesh and our fallen minds lead us. If I'm not careful, you know what I'm really into? I'm into debates, like, Political debate. I love, I can listen to political debates all day. But if I do that, I'm being led by the desires of my mind rather than truth. Paul says all of us were led by the desires of our flesh and led by the desires of our mind as a result of our internal condition. Paul says our, our external standing before God was we were children of wrath. Because our internal position was this way, our external position before God was, we were children of wrath. But perhaps the greatest phrase in the New Testament is this. Verse verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead, in, dead in, in sin, made us alive in Christ. We were internally this way, externally we were in this standing, but the grace of Christ changed our internal nature and changed our standing before God. That's what Ephesians 2 is about. And small group leaders, because of time, I have to let, I'm going to let you discuss with your small group in more repercussion of what Ephesians 2 means. But Ephesians chapter 2 means God's grace is God's changing a person's standing before him and changing a person's nature. A person who once lived to gratify the desires of their flesh and the desires of their minds now wants to live for the will of God. That's verse 10. That's God's grace. Grace of God is him fundamentally changing you. And Paul is telling Timothy, young Timothy, there are a lot of things that I told you to do in this letter. You have to fight the false teachers. You have to take care of the widows. You got to teach young men and older men to pray. You got to teach women not to be gossips or wear scantily clad outfits to church. You gotta select the right pastors, you gotta select the right deacons, right? You gotta, you gotta watch your money and your doctrine. There's a lot of things I told you to do in the letter, Timothy. But Timothy, in order for you to do all these things, hope in the grace, life-changing power and energy of God to do what you're called to do. And that is what all of us need to do. At the end of the day, this is God's game. This is God's world. This is God's project. 
Understand? My life, your life, it's about God's project. And you have to do what God called you to do, which is to work hard, love your families, love the church. I'm called to do what I'm called to do, which is faithfully teach to you and pray for you and love you and buy you meals if I have to. And I got to do all these things I got to do. You got to read your Bible. I got to read my Bible. I got to pray. We got to do all these things we got to do. But underneath all these things that we do, Paul says, my goodness, hope in the grace of God who will change things for you. Do you understand? That's why I can't understand Christians who don't pray. When you're not praying, you know what you're saying when you're not praying? I don't need the grace of God. I got this. No, you do not. I am so sorry to say you are so limited. I am so limited at what I can do. God designed you to be limited so that you will depend on the limitless God so that you can watch what he does. Look, my wife, God bless my wife, she's a music director of this church, as you know. And their Lutheran church, they, they, their Reformation is a really big thing for them because Martin Luther is a father of Reformation. And so she was preparing this very elaborate concert where they, where they hired professional musicians, singers, blast players, horn players. It's crazy how elaborate this was. And my wife did it so swimmingly well. And she said, I'm doing what I'm called to do, but all these things are happening beyond my abilities, she says. The concert went so well, rich donors, are, they were so touched by her music, they want to donate to the church. And she said, it is beyond my ability this thing, what happened. That's true, and that's the way it is. Do what you're called to do, but my goodness, hope in the grace of God. And when you do, oh, he will do things that are beyond your imagination. That's what Timothy is called to do, and that's what you and I are called to do. Hope in the life-changing power and energy of the grace of God. Let us pray. <clears throat>